You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. With me today, I have editor Dan Bennett. Hi. Managing editor Alice Lipscomb-Southwell. Hello. And commissioning editor Jason Goodyear. Hi, Anne. We're going to tell you all about the February issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. So first up, Alice, what are you going to tell us about? I'm going to be talking about why we should teach artificial intelligence how to tell stories. Um, now, this is quite an interesting topic. We were we interviewed Lara Martin, um, who is trying to do that very thing, um, to see why it's important that you know, machines and um, computers can tell these stories. And she said um, this could really help us with things like Alexa and Siri because you can think of everything as like a story. So if you were trying to uh, you do a birthday party or something for your child, you could say, hey, Alexa, or hey, Siri, um, I'm going to do a birthday party for my child. Um, can you help? And then it could sort of create a story about that. So say you know, all good parties start with cake. So go to the shop, buy yourself a cake. Um, and while you're there, maybe get some balloons, some decorations um, and wrapping paper. These are all the things you're going to need. And so that means that then, you know, Alexa and all of those um, other sort of personal assistants would be a lot easier then. Well, they'd work a lot better, perhaps, because they'd have this story they could follow to uh, be a bit more useful in your daily life. So, um, yeah, that's what she's working on. And she's trying to combine a couple of different techniques of doing it. Um, Now, there's a modern technique where it takes a load of stories that you then sort of run them through an algorithm and then it starts looking at patterns and things like that. Now, this modern technique is really good, but it can just eventually turn to gobbledygook. It'll start doing a story and it'll just go and spit out nonsense towards the end. And then there's an older technique where the actual researchers, they'll create plot points for a story and then the AI will sort of work its way through those plot points. So it ends up being a lot sort of better and it can follow the story a lot better. Um, But, you know, that is a lot more effort for the researchers. So she's trying to combine those two methods to make these AIs tell amazing stories. Um, And her ultimate thing that she'd really love to see, but she doesn't know if she can do it or not, is to make Dungeons and Dragons uh, be played by computers. So... Wow. So I'd just like to go back and talk about those two different methods that you mentioned. So one of them you said was the more modern one was um, you feed in some stories and it tries to figure out 
from that how to tell a story and from the other one it's you give it a bunch of plot points and so it does it basically decide on its own combination of those plot points in the in the older method does it basically just say oh i'm going to start with this one and then i think i'm going to go that way that way that way yeah, so it'll sort of follow those plot points itself and decide which way to do it to make this story. And she said it's um, one way of thinking of it is almost like one of those big online multiplayer games. So it's creating all these little plot points and following the story in that way. Um, there's not as much focus on sort of the grammatical points of that as well, but it's just this creating a story that the AI is sort of working with people to do. Right. And in the modern one, uh, that, that sounds quite familiar. You see them online sometimes, people saying, oh, I fed an AI a bunch of scripts from whatever tv show and it made it come up with its own one um but it it seems like the problem with that is that it it struggles to sort of form a coherent story right so you know how 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 could you get an ai to identify each character and understand how to follow each character through the plot is that is that would you say that's a benefit of the of the older method as opposed to the newer one yeah, so I think the older method, um, yeah, that can sort of create the plot points a bit better, perhaps. Um, but then, um, yeah, the modern one, it will sort of, you know, start doing it quite grammatically well, and then it'll sort of lose its track along the way. So yeah, I think that'd be good if you could combine them both. And that's what she is trying to work on at the moment. Because um, you can, because then you'll be able to use the newer method to make the computer tell stories about anything. But then you can also use the older method to make sure that, you know, it's coherent and the plot points are all involved in there. Um, so it's really exciting. So you can kind of, there is um there is a, a, a sort of uh, AI Dungeons and Dragons out there right now, isn't there? Yes, there is AI Dungeon already that someone has created. Um, and I think she did say that this one can end up, um, you know, you take turns with it, like those old style um, adventure games. And that is using the new methods. So, I mean, I don't know if you've had a go on it, but I've, I have done it and it's quite good. So as long as you get it just right, you know, it can sort of give you an answer. But sometimes it's a bit like, oh, good try, you know, <laughs> you could have done better. So. <laughs> so you can't stretch it. You can't, you can't start getting too creative and, um, you know, introducing pet dogs and... No, uh, it just gets a bit confused. <laughs> yeah, it just gets confused when you do that. So, um, I mean, that's what she said. Her ultimate aim is if you can get an AI to you know be able to create these stories and be creative with it as well. So. Yeah, I was just wondering, like, how far away are we from these sort of things making even like basic little little stories, you know, little short children's stories or, or something like that, rather than something more complex? I mean, just wondered what sort of uh, level they're at at the moment. I mean, they are quite very basic stories they can tell at the moment. Um, I mean, Lara did talk about if um, there's somewhere we could combine it, so, you know, for um, screenwriting for films or something, then the computer could sort of give you the ideas and then you could run with it. And but then you get the sort of issues of, oh, is that the computer that's got the copyright of that? Or is that the human that's got the copyright of it? And then you get into all these philosophical arguments. <laughs> so... Are we saying that an AI could ever be truly imaginative? Like it could ever come up with a brand new idea on its own? It's not just reworking and regurgitating ideas that we've put in. I think it could be potentially.
actually, Lara said that um, when she was working with these AIs, um, she had sort of was doing occasionally stories and then she said to the AI, oh, you know, what's the next sentence? And a lot of the time it was just nonsense that came out. But once it said about, um, how about a horse that was a lawn chair entrepreneur? And, which is amazing. And she just thought, well, if you actually <laughs> then decided to run with that and someone could then work on it. And, you know, it's quite an inventive thing to think of. I mean, okay, maybe a hundred times you might get a nonsense idea, but then now and again, you might get something really unusual that a human would never think about. Great. Thanks, Alice. Um, so, Dan, what was your favourite thing from this issue of the magazine? Yeah, so in this issue, um, I got quite uh, a strange launch came uh, into my inbox and I sort of didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, essentially, uh, the message was that they were going to launch uh, the world's first, they, they called it an urban airport, but essentially the world's first airport for drones and flying cars in Coventry. Uh, and they were doing it in a few days. Um, and I just couldn't, it just seems so far, so far-fetched because, I mean, we don't see any drones really in, in the skies unless you you head to a park or something. And then even then there's actually fairly strict guidelines about, you know, flying them next to people and how far you can fly them from houses. And then, you know, flying cars. I mean, how long have been waiting for those um but no it's it's a it's a totally legitimate <laughs> and real idea that's that seems to be taking place uh this year um so what it is is essentially we, we you know we're seeing right now uh every curb pretty much has a, a van on on it parked on it right now somewhere with someone doing amazon deliveries or you know whatever online store you use um, and, you know, not just because of lockdown, but it's been on the rise where there's just so many deliveries now. Like I live in an apartment block and, and the ground floor is just always piles of boxes. So there's, there's coming a point at which it's going to start making sense to use drones to make those deliveries. Not perhaps, you know, all the way from uh, the Amazon Fulfillment Centre all the way through to my address. But perhaps, you know, a van could take a Amazon package to, you know, a local centre just outside of Bristol, and then a fleet of drones can whiz them over to their uh, destinations. And it wouldn't maybe be my house, but, you know, perhaps it might be down the road. There's a little centre where I can go and pick up my package. And so these the sort of people behind this, these uh, airports have kind of seen this future sort of rearing its head. And they've gone, well, for that to happen, we need... Um, infrastructure. And so I, I got to talk to this, the CEO uh, and the man behind this idea, uh, Ricky Sandy. And um, he, his his metaphor is like, you know, if you want trains and railways, well, you need train stations and train depots. Um, you can't have the one without the other. So, so we need the infrastructure to be able to support what he sees as an inevitable thing of drones sort of taking around the skies and doing our deliveries. And indeed, he cited um, where this is already happening to a degree in places like Ireland and um, South Africa, uh, where particularly in sort of remote areas, uh, people are, you know, able to now get a delivery via a drone. Um, the flying car bit, I think, is <laughs> probably further down the line. But interestingly, they, they've secured some considerable investment from Hyundai, a Korean car manufacturer. Um, because, uh, and, and they, they approach them because of this, they have, de- you know, developed 
a, I think it's two-seater, maybe maybe four-seater, effectively a flying car. Um, I mean, it's basically a very, very big helicopter. Um, and so, you know, if you're going to have those and they look pretty cool, I'm sure uh, I'd, I'd love a ride in it. Well, it might, might be a bit scary. Um, you need infrastructure to sort of support these. Uh, and what's quite cool about these is they're these little um, sort of circular hubs that you can drop in somewhere uh, and they are technically off-grid. So they have their own hydrogen power generation. So you don't even need to sort of wire it up and, you know, get electricity to it. Uh, and on top of that, if it's off-grid um, using hydrogen and solar power, then it's also pretty green, pretty clean. So you can charge up your drone there, fly it over, uh, and crucially offset that, you know, pollution, air pollution and and congestion that's being caused by all these deliveries. So it sounds like this could solve the, uh, I think I've heard of it called the last mile problem in in home deliveries. So the bulk of um, the travel involved in home deliveries is apparently, well, it's quite easy to make that environmentally friendly. So, you know, you can have electric vans or hydrogen-powered trains or lorries or whatever, and that can get your product most of the way. But it's the last mile from the depot to your house, apparently, that is the the bit that's hardest to make environmentally friendly because it's, you know, there's vans driving around city centres and all day long stopping at everyone's houses and stuff. So it sounds like these potentially hydrogen-powered or electric drones um, could be the solution to that. Um, finally make, making it easy to do that that very last bit of the delivery. It's tough It's tough to say right now because so for that to properly work, and it would be great because I say it is one of the biggest issues that cities are facing, that, that last mile problem. Um, but the thing is we don't... So, so the, the stage that we're at is that the um, Civil Aviation Authority and um, different city authorities are in, in conversations with lots of different invested parties to figure out where these drones are allowed to fly. Um, because obviously, if, if you've got all these boxes flying over people's heads, there's a definite safety concern there. And there's also, you know, a visual pollution element. Like, do we want to see uh, drones littering, clustering up the skies? So that's all in negotiation. So what we don't know is how close they can get to where we live and where we are. Um, so it may be, uh, and this is this is what Ricky, uh, when I sort of put this question to him, is, is his answer as well. Likely there's going to be little depots in places and, you know, like we have now with like Amazon drop boxes, um, we might go there to where our drone drops off our uh, packages, you know, and, and they need to be close enough, I suppose, to make it all make sense. But it, he was kind of quite uh, reserved to say, you know, it's not that I think this is the only way. It's just that the more we can offset sort of problematic um, congestion and air pollution with ideas like this, the better chance we'll have. Because the other the other factor is that, so to, to make all these deliveries green, we need electric uh, vans, which uh, are, are in, you know, there's quite a few of them now. People are buying them. A lot of the Royal Mail vans are electric. You see them around. Um, but they all need to plug into the grid. 
So there's a growing pressure on the UK's energy grid. Uh, and who's to say how we're going to deal with that in the next few years? It's particularly with the there's a you know a supposed 2030 um, ban on new petrol electric cars. So we don't know how that's going to happen. So that's why it's so key that this uh, solution that they've come up with is actually off grid because you can implement it without putting any extra pressure on an already sort of strained system. So how noisy will these drones or electrics or planes be? Because, you know, cities are quite noisy anyway. I live near a busy road and the sound of the traffic going past really gets me down. And then um, I think drones, when you sort of see them, they are quite noisy. You know, you know when they're there, they're whirring over your head. So if you've got dozens of these sort of flying about all over the city, is that going to be a problem? <laughs> yeah, right. And especially if it's like a flying air taxi, like a huge drone <laughs> buzzing off. Um, I, asked, I asked Ricky this uh, and his... His answer said, so they've done a lot of testing and actually they've, they've worked with NASA on this one. So that's quite interesting because, you know, um, it says to me that the flying car element and the airways element of it is uh, not so far-fetched. But they, they, they say that essentially the, the urban airport takeoff platform will be a couple stories high, uh, higher than, you know, where any people are living. So if it was... Uh, if you're near an apartment block, then it would have to be higher than that. But if you're just on a level house, then it would be a couple stories above you. And they say that in the midst of the typical urban congestion and noise, that once you're that high, the wind noise and everything else is enough to um, sort of cancel out the noise of the drones. Don't know how true that is. Obviously, we can't... uh, (laughs) We kind of heard it yourself. I definitely agree with you that drones are pretty noisy. And even when they're flying quite high up in the air, you do hear them. Um, but presumably these won't be too near where people live. I'm I'm guessing. I don't know. But for instance, the one in Coventry is, um, uh, you know, it's not actually near any city centres. It's quite near an Amazon fulfilment centre. They've got a massive one there. Uh, and then it connects all these different places. So I don't think, I don't envision it becoming common in um you know residential areas but interestingly i I was i was a little bit more interested actually in in the idea of it as sort of instant infrastructure so ricky was talking about how you know if if, if you went to say somewhere that was uh having an epidemic and it had poor infrastructure you know you couldn't get medicine to people via roads or um you know traditional means you could drop one of these in uh, and you could fly medicine to people all around and, and very quickly react to uh, a, a local epidemic. And that's quite cool. And he, and he has said that he has had sort of interest from um, the UK uh, the UK Defence Ministry. So that that's pretty interesting. I was just wondering, when you said back then it's in Coventry, um, why Coventry? Wouldn't it make more sense for a city like you know, Birmingham or London or you know Edinburgh or something like that? It seems like quite an obscure place. Yeah, um, so so there's a couple of things there. So one is I think they had a partnership with the uh, with Coventry, the city, because it's the city of culture this year. Um, obviously, with everything that's been going on, who knows how that's going to pan out. So it seemed like a good timing and place to kind of get eyes on the project because so they recently um, got government funding. So they've got a few million from the UK government. They got some money from Hyundai, and they're, they're still looking for more ev- investors to take the idea further. 
So that seemed like a nice showcase to debut it. And Coventry as well, I think uh, you mentioned Birmingham, but it's it sort of, you know, it sits kind of near the middle, not really, but, you know, Ricky described it as the middle of the country. It is, it is near Birmingham. It's near quite a lot of places. There's one of the UK's biggest Amazon fulfillment centres near there, so it makes sense in that kind of test scenario. Um, also, uh, there's a lot of engineering and motoring industry up there. Uh, JLR Jaguar Land Rover is in that um, part of the the UK. So I think it was interesting because Ricky himself said, you know, I could put this anywhere in the world, but you know, I'm a British architect. I went to university here. I grew up here. It's quite cool that we can try and help and cr- perhaps create jobs in this area in Coventry um, to make it work. So he seemed you know, he was pretty proud of the fact that he was able to um, secure a spot for it here, you know, the first one in England. And indeed, you know, in the next, if it, it does seem like it, it's a thing that's going to happen, these drone highways. And certainly uh, seems like something we're very good at is aviation and certainly small satellites and things like that. So it seems like we're, we're kind of quite well poised to be sort of pioneers as a country in, in this in this area. All right, Dan, thank you very much. So now we're going to finish off with Jason. Jason, what are you going to tell us about? I'm going to tell you about the latest development in the one of the biggest mysteries of modern physics, which is dark matter. So just by way of context, it's, this, it's sort of obviously something as somebody who studied physics, I've been aware, aware of ever since I started studying it. But it's kind of crazy to think that it was first um, sort of proposed almost 100 years ago now by Fritz uh, Zwicky, the Swiss astronomer. Obviously, he found the discrepancy in the, the motion of the stars and galaxies and their gravitational pull. So basically, they're moving far too fast to be held in the specific positions that they are in galaxies. And that was in the early 30s. <clears throat> so there's been all sorts of different candidates for what this discrepancy is. Is it, as Fritz himself thought, dark matter, something that we can't see, something that isn't luminous but has a gravitational effect? And there's been all sorts of uh, different proposals for these. Chief among them, uh, as far as I mean, I can remember it, has been WIMPs, which are weakly interacting massive particles. So there's loads of potential WIMPs out there as well. It, you know, they come from all sorts of different ideas like supersymmetry, like heavier particles that currently exist, that we're known to exist, like electrons, heavier electrons, and there's all sorts of clever maths that people have done to, to, um, to try and figure out exactly what this is. But so far, nobody's really got anywhere. There's been all sorts of massive detectors for these WIMPs, and uh, no, no, nobody's really... It's basically been a case of no dice. So there's this place... Um, Big, massive. So what they use is like huge tanks of xenon. Uh, so these particles, wimps, obviously by their name, they're very shy. They don't interact with things. So the, the theory is here, if we have a massive, and they're in like super pristine clean environments underneath mountains, this particular one, xenon 1T, is in the Apennines in, in central Italy. Uh, so they try to isolate them as much as possible, and it's a huge area, and they've tried to detect just one interaction with one of these wimps. 
in um, this enormous tank of xenon and you'll get, basically it will just whack into one of these things and it will spit out some photons basically and then they, they can detect that. So, as I say, this has been done all around the world in all sorts of Antarctica and everywhere, and they haven't really... I mean, there have been some results, but they haven't, there's nothing definitive. But in this, um, I think it was last summer, in this particular uh, detector, Xenon 1T in Italy, they found a really intriguing interaction. And so at first, some people were saying, oh, it's just that the system's contaminated and it's some sort of problem due to that, or it could be like yet another candidate for dark matter axions, which also have, have yet are still hypothetical. Um, Tom's like, oh, it could be an axion. Well, yeah, it could be, but there's a new, more intriguing option that um, these guys in the Netherlands have thought of. And it's an interaction between something called a dark boson. Ooh. So we can, we can get really into this now and we really shouldn't so basically everyone's instantly going to ask oh hey is that like a higgs boson and it's like mm, it's a boson so there's many different types of bosons so basically they're particles that carry forces so uh the most commonly known one is of course the photon which carries the force of the, of the electro the electromagnetic force or electromagnetic fields etc so it's basically that it's a, it's a particle that carries a force Sorry, Jason. So a photon is also known as a particle of light, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. So look, light being part of the electromagnetic spectrum, photons, it's boson. It's it's the electromagnetic boson. Yeah. So we see electromagnetic radiation as humans as light. So yeah, it's a particle of light. So, so they theorise that these signals that are cropping up um, is something called a dark boson. So what does that tell us? If that's the case, what does that tell us about the, the nature of dark matter? What, what does it tell us that we didn't already uh, know? Okay, so <clears throat> dark matter is just basically, well, it, you know, it might not even be there. Who knows? It's what we use to... to for example, the, the, there's an Israeli uh, physicist that since the 80s made this thing called modified Newtonian dynamics, where he thinks, actually, there's no such thing as dark matter. And it's just that um, Newton's laws of motions work differently on the scale of galaxies. But dark matter, so it's basically something that you cannot see with, you detect detect using uh, light instruments, electromagnetic radiation. So it has a gravitational effect it has, it has a mass and it influences things around it, but we can't see it. So that's why it was originally called dark matter, because um, without going too much into it, basically the, the brighter, the heavier a star, the more mass a star is, the brighter it is. So uh, Zwicky's original experiments were based around sort of comparing the gravitational effects he thought he would see by the motions compared to the luminosity. So that's why it's called dark matter. So... As it's dark matter, you can't detect it using electromagnetic radiation on those sort of detectors. So then what could it be? So it, it could, for example, some people think it could be primordial black holes. These are black holes that were created in the early, in, early universe. They're like tiny, I don't know, marble-sized black holes. Um, and we, you can't see them with, with your, your usual telescopes, but you can see the effect, the gravitational effect that they have. 
So is it them? So, well, that's where the wimps come in because um, we can't, they're very difficult to detect. But if there are, and they're very light, but if, well, they're massive. So they have a mass, but it's not significant, like a black hole, for instance. For instance. But obviously, if there's enough of them, they can have an effect on the, um, the gravitational pull within a certain system. So there must be loads of dark matter about then if you're saying that it has this massive effect and if these yeah. dark bosons, if they're creating dark matter, there's going to be zillions of them zipping about all the time, well, surely. The, uh, most of the most of the I the candidates for dark matter dark matter, excuse me, are hypothetical. But yeah, it's it's eighty percent of the known mass in the universe is is unaccounted for. Um so that's so when your dark boson comes in, this is like a, a really it was an absolutely new one on me, and it's really quite weird. But basically, there are particles that they're affected by gravity, but not by other forces. So um, the guys researching it say, for example, they, they could, like normal matter, ordinary matter, clump together to, perform, to form massive objects. But you could still pass completely straight through them because they don't interact at all with the electromagnetic force. So you could have like so, a huge star made of dark bosons that you could just walk straight through. Well, not walk, exactly, but you're yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, which is very odd, isn't it? Um, and they say that, they get, that these things can clump together and theoretically clump together in such massive quantities that they could be as big as supermassive uh, black holes. So the... Um, Event Horizon Telescope, if you remember, that um, took the photograph of the first photograph of a black hole. So these, there's a new group of researchers that are saying now, thanks to that uh, that technology and that ability that we now have, we might be able to detect these dark boson stars because they won't suck all the light out of their environment in the same way that a black hole does. So if we see a certain you know, large but uh, dark area of mass and strong gravitational pull, but we don't detect this distinct signature of a black hole, then it potentially could be one of these dark boson stars. Wow. So if we could get dark boson stars, does that mean we could get dark boson planets, dark boson solar systems? I mean, you see, yeah, I mean, that's, I've read about stuff like this before, right? And um, it seems possible, doesn't it? I, but I don't know. But like, obviously, they're going to behave in a slightly different way. So I think in a lot of cases, perhaps the analogy falls down a little bit. So so they're called dark boson stars, but they're, they're not going to produce nuclear fusion, etc. obviously, because that we would be able to see them if they did. But um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, and um, I've heard that theory proposed before, but that such a thing could exist. But this isn't particularly, due to the difficulty in detection, detecting them, that isn't what these, this particular group of researchers are looking at. But, um, I mean, I can't speak for them, I don't know, but it seems like an exciting possibility, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. It sounds so exciting. Um... I was, say, I, just I was wondering when you said earlier about they use these um, xenon detectors to um, find them. Why do they use xenon? Is it something special about that element or or not? Yeah, it produces when the things hit it. It produces a certain type of radiation that that you that you can detect, which they use for this specific purpose. 
it's quite an old what it's called Cherenkov is that right uh, I think it's called yeah, Cherenkov radiation um, but yeah, it's it's quite it's, it's been going on. Oh, blimey! I think since about the nineties, that this idea, I can at least remember it when I was studying it. Maybe they hadn't. I think they were setting them up, or they were just setting them up. But yeah, that, that's whether you. It has to be very because you know there things. Lots of particles can just pass through everything without interacting with with, with, it, with anything whatsoever. Like it, it happens all the time. So it's it, you have to be very lucky. But it's like. Um, it's like a waiting game and a size game. You know, they're, they're trying to maximise their uh, their potentials to discover these interactions like that. So that's why they do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. The February issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Also in this issue, we explore how your brain creates reality. We meet the people who are creating valuable resources from waste And, as always, our panel of experts answer your questions. Of course, there's much more inside and on sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.